Here we go. We're in Jeremiah 32. We'll be in Jeremiah 33 next week. We're in this, um, in this period of history where the prophets are predicting that it's not going to go well and, um, and the people don't want to hear it. Now, um, that was several years back, I, uh, we had, we had kind of put a bid on a house and it didn't go well. And, and literally, uh, over a year later, that same house had remained unsold. And it was kind of an interesting deal. And we were in a different financial place. And, and we actually ran about the same bid on the house. It was kind of interesting because it had sat unoccupied. It had never been moved into. And uh, this time they took our bid. But Rhonda didn't know that. And uh, it happened to be on my parents' anniversary. Dad was still living. And we were going to his favorite place, Applewoods. You remember Applewoods? And uh, we're going to his favorite place, kind of celebrating his and mom's anniversary. And I walked in, the, I walked in with, a, with a box wrapped up with a new keychain on it and one key on it. And I gave it to Rhonda for my mother's anniversary. I don't know how that works, but um, um, just saying she didn't know it. It's a great celebration. You remember that, that kind of deal where maybe it was your first house or your first apartment or... Um, uh, first little rental place, I, I was talking to John Fizer this week about uh, the first little mobile home that we lived in in Florida, and uh, hell, we thought we'd died and gone to heaven, you know, we had our own place, and, and uh, you remember that? We're going to talk today about a deed, about a deed that's important in the history of Israel. Now, what you need to recognize is that our friend Jeremiah had no friends in his day. Talked to a young pastor on the phone last night. Uh, by the way, can I get absolution here? Forgiveness? Uh, while I was talking to him, I had one eye on the ball game. Sorry, it was kind of one of those deals. He called it the worst possible time. Am I about, about to lose this? Um, okay, you give me absolution, okay. Uh, but one of the deals he was dealing with is just loneliness. They're in a little town, you know, um, and just trying to serve the Lord. and I remember that feeling. I still get it occasionally. Uh, Jeremiah had no friends. That's, that's a horrible thing to think about. Um, and he's doing the work that, one, that the Lord wants him to do. Residents of his own hometown even wanted to kill him. There's a surprising twist we're going to deal with today. His cousin, who doesn't like him, is going to come to see it. Now, anybody ever had that thing happen? Now, remember, I didn't say he didn't like his cousin. He probably didn't care much for his cousin. But we know his cousin didn't like him. He comes to see him. And it's kind of in the middle of a, of a kind of a weird time in, um, in the, um, uh, the life of really the, the nation of Israel. I, want, I wish, Bob, if you would please go to uh, Jeremiah 32. And let's go ahead and read... Um, the first five verses of Jeremiah 32.
Okay, now, we're dealing with some members of, uh, we're going to deal in this story with some members of um, Jeremiah's family. Jeremiah comes from a town called Anathoth. I want to read to you what Anathoth, the town of Anathoth, thought about Jeremiah. This is going to come from chapter 11, verse 21. Therefore says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life, saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord so that you will not die at our hand. What's that telling you? That what Jeremiah's hometown thought about Jeremiah? They hate it. They want to kill him. Remember Jesus said, centuries later, said, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown? He experienced that. Jeremiah certainly did. Jeremiah was alone. No wonder they called him the weeping prophet. You know, And so as, as Bob read for us here, what we've got to understand is that the city is under siege. The uh, Babylonian army is outside the city. It begins uh, in the ninth year or so of Zedekiah's reign, who's the king at the time. Um, and 18, um, uh, it, it lasts for about 18 months. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes the throne in 605, so we're about in 587 B.C. somewhere. We know that Jerusalem will fall completely in 586, so we're about 18 months or so before that, somewhere in there. And, uh, and you know, the Babylonians are outside the gate. They're kind of all shut in here. Now, what is Jeremiah's position? He's been arrested, okay? He's a prisoner of the guard in kind of the, the courtyard or something of, uh, of, of the king. Okay, now, Zedekiah, who's the current king, doesn't like Jeremiah because Jeremiah says, you're going to pay a price for ignoring um, my message, or specifically ignoring the Lord's message. I'm going to go, if you want to go with me, I'm going to go to 2 Kings 24. Back to the left a ways. Now, there are enough ridiculous names in 2 Kings 24 that I'm going to read this myself, okay? Because if I mess them up, it won't embarrass anybody but me. All right, I'm going to go to 24, and I'm going to read 17 down through 20. Then the king of Babylon made his uncle Mathaniah king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Now, it's not, it's not the king of Babylon's uncle. It's uh, Jehoiakim's uncle. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libda. Not the same Jeremiah we're talking about. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah, until he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Okay, now, Jeremiah is telling the king... You're going to soon pay a price for ignoring my message. And this is when the word of the Lord comes to him here. He's saying this is the Lord's message, not just mine. Now, uh, we recognize as we look, uh, as we continue here in, in chapter 32, we recognize that um, it, it, king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard which is in the house of the king of Judah. So the idea here is in Zedekiah's court, Jeremiah is in disfavor with the royal court. The army of Babylon surrounds the city. He's under arrest 
in the courtyard, uh, it gets worse. Somebody jump over to 38.6 and then come back to 32. 38.6. Just when you think it couldn't get much worse, he's under kind of house arrest here and the king hates him. It gets a little worse. You could argue it gets a lot worse. 38.6, who's got it? Sorry to make you pronounce that big old name. I, I forgot that was in there. What happened to Jeremiah later? They throw him in a well, a mud well. No water in it. I guess that's one good thing, although he's up to his neck in mud eventually. What a terrible thing. Okay, so it gets worse. Now, why all this? I want to deal a little bit with verse 3, 4, and 5 and why, why the king just hates Jeremiah and the people here. Um, and it's interesting, as verse 3 begins, the king's, King Zedekiah is going to call Jeremiah to him and he's going to say, this is what you say God says. It's a, kind of a circular argument here. But he says, you say God says this. All right, so uh, first of all, um, uh, one of the things that, that Jeremiah kind of tells him here is that or at least the way Zedekiah uh, interprets it here, and it's pretty true, is that God is kind of on the side of the Babylonians right now. You can put God in that first line there, number one. God is on the side of the Babylonians. The king is saying, you mean to tell me that God is going to act against the nation of Israel? Jeremiah says, you got it. Okay? Why? Zedekiah ought to know why. All right? Second here, in verse 4, he predicts that the king himself will be captured. Now, this is personally threatening to the king, wouldn't you think? I think so. Now, what I want us to do is I want to go over to 39 and read the outcome of this. Did the king get captured? Yeah, well, the capturing part was the easy part. Okay, look at 39. I'm going to go to verse 5. But the army of the Chaldeans, now when you read Chaldeans, that's Babylonian. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. He was trying to get away, and they seized him and brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. Okay, so he did get captured. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes at Riblah. He killed his kids in front of him. The king of Babylon also slew all the nobles of Judah, the elders of the nation. He then blinded Zedekiah's eyes and bound him in fetters of bronze to bring him to Babylon. Doesn't sound very good, does it? Did Jeremiah know what he was talking about? Uh-huh. You're going to be held captive. And the third thing, and this is even worse in some ways, the king is to be displayed as kind of a war prize. So not only does he have to go through all this hideousness, is that a word? Hideosity? So, uh, huh? Uh, sounds good? I think people make up words all the time, Joanne. But in the middle of all this hideousness, 
He, he adds insult to injury by saying, okay, now I'm going to kind of display you. Now blinded, former king, I'm going to let people make sport of you. Well, that's what Jeremiah's message has, has, has been. He predicts the king's going to be captured. He predicts that the king is to be displayed as a war prize, and it actually happens. And, and by the way, I put the reference to 2 Chronicles 36. We won't camp out there for now, but the Bible literally has no good thing to say about Zedekiah. Somebody run over to Deuteronomy 18.22. I promise you this one doesn't have big words in it. Deuteronomy 18.22. Except the word Deuteronomy itself is a big word, right? Deut- he'll go to Deuteronomy 18.22. John, will you do that? When is a prophet proven to be a prophet? When his predictions come true. And is that, is that silly? Okay. When does a leader become a leader? When people follow, right? Somebody once said, if you claim to be a leader, nobody's following, you're just taking a walk. Okay? <laughs> All right? Deuteronomy 18.22. Who's got it? Oh, John's got it. Okay, great. Isn't it interesting? The Bible deals with this specifically. The guy claims to be a prophet, then wait and see if what he predicts comes true. Okay? I'm going to get in real trouble right here. The Holy Spirit is saying, don't you dare, and I'm going to do it anyway. I don't think it's the Holy Spirit. I think it's something else in there. Anybody who was a great Hal Lindsey fan back in the 1970s? Okay, a lot of people were. Okay, all right. Did you read the second book where he refuted all he said in the first book and said, no, it's going to go this way? Okay. I rest my case, Gloria. All right. A prophet is a prophet when he predicts what he prophesies comes about. It may take a long time for that to happen. It may take outside of his lifetime for that to happen. Certainly a lot of what Jeremiah predicted did. A lot of what Isaiah predicted happened centuries later. Okay, now... I kind of want to, before we go to verse 6, I kind of want to say, meanwhile, back at the ranch, okay? Meanwhile, okay, while, while you got to kind of get the picture here. Meanwhile, while the armies of Nebuchadnezzar are camped outside the city, besieging the city, okay? Jeremiah is under arrest. The king knows it's not going to go well for him. He doesn't like that, so he's uh, basically uh, uh, kind of dealing with... Uh, uh, in, in bad ways with Jeremiah himself. Meanwhile, Jeremiah gets a visit from his cousin. And God predicts he's going to get a visit from his cousin. Somebody read, go to verse 6 and read down through 9. And if there's a name or two in there that you don't kind of have interest in, just say, this guy, and go on. Yeah. 6 through 9.
okay. Now, first of all, I want to just catch this. God is going to. Ha God has a lot of me lot of messages for Jeremiah for the nation. But this one is a personal message. Okay? One of the things I want us to think about here is that God has not forgotten the prophet Jeremiah, even though Jeremiah is so alone. Even though the king of the land is ticked at him. Even though if he went back to Anathoth, his hometown, they would want, you know, some guy would be there, uh, you know, like the, uh, like the old uh, salsa commercial, and they'd say, get a rope. You know, I mean, remember that day when they served New York City salsa? Okay. Um, even if, and that's going back home. Even though all these things, God is still speaking through him, and now, you got to catch this, God is going to speak to him. A personal message. Now, whether or not Jeremiah likes the message, I don't know. He does what God tells him to do. But don't you know it had to be encouraging to him to get a direct personal message from God? Can I tell you? There's rare, rarely a day that goes by that I don't get a personal message from God as I read his book. It's just the way it is. And you know, there's some day, I'm like right now I'm reading the book of De Deuteronomy. And there's sometimes when I get kind of deep in the weeds of all those names and, and, uh, and re regulations and all those things. And I realize, hey pal, your, your mind is elsewhere. And I go back and read that same section again. And the Lord just taps me right on the shoulder and says, hey pal, this is for you. God wants to give you a personal message. And he wants to do that really on a daily basis. Jeremiah heard personally from God. He says to him, you're going to soon have a visitor. Now, what we need to kind of put a couple of references here. Did a little bit of work on the background. Basically, Jeremiah's family is embarrassed by him. You know, here's this guy that's making everybody in Jerusalem mad at him. He's predicting bad things for the people of God. Never mind the fact that he was right. But his family is basic. Uh, basically embarrassed by him. So you've got to catch this now. This is, a very, um, this is a very ironic moment, okay? Jeremiah is under arrest in the court of the king. The city is under siege. Things couldn't be going much worse. And somehow his cousin slips through the wall and comes to see him. And he wants to talk to him about buying property. Now, that ought to make you laugh a little. This is, I'm in a car with a guy who's driving his car over a cliff, and he says, hey, you want a deal on a car? <laughs> it really is. And it's really interesting how, how Jeremiah responds to it. God predicts it, and, you know, before, before Jeremiah barely gets up from his knees in prayer, his cousin Hey, it's Cousin Burford from Anathoth. It, it, his name wasn't Burford. It was something else. I forgot. But he's kind of a Burford kind of guy, okay? Isn't it interesting? I, I just find it really interesting. He's going to have a, a visitor. Now, we've got to deal a little bit with, with law here. Why is Hanamel's, that's Burford for you, why is Hanamel's property up for sale? I'm sorry? 
Okay, you're going to have to say it again because I don't hear good. Well, it's actually not that deal, but it's a part of that law. Uh, you're talking about the, the law of redemption, and every seven years it goes back to the family. No, the deal is here, as far as I can figure it out, Karen, is this guy's hit, he has come on bad economic times. Why? Because Babylon, the Babylonians are, are besieging Jerusalem, okay? He's got a piece of property that he needs a family member to buy. Karen, that's what you're referring to. You can read about that in the book of Ruth. Okay, all that, that story, the book of Ruth, that had to do with why Boaz redeemed the property. Okay, Same law is in effect here. This guy's basically saying, hey, you know what? I'm not doing all that well. I got a piece of property. You're the nearest kin I've got. You need to buy my piece of ground. Where's Jeremiah? Inside the city in jail. It's just goofy. Part of the will of God, but it's really, really goofy. Okay? Your duty, he says, to buy my property. There was no, you know, he didn't, didn't bake him a cake with a file in it. He didn't do, you know, he just said, you need to buy my property. So what does Jeremiah do? He bought the property. In fact, he counts out cash. I find that incredible. It kind of gives us, we don't know exactly how much that amount was because he used a, a measure of silver. We don't know how, you know, what, the, what the, the rate of exchange was at that point because the Babylonians are kind of, kind of at the gate. So um, probably though, in context, this is bought at market value, not at a bargain price. This wasn't a fire sale, even though it probably should have been. To pay market value for a piece of ground under siege is in itself exorbitant, and that's what Jeremiah paid. Now, we got to move on here so we can finish this, but you just got to catch what in the world is Jeremiah up to? Okay, now he's going to take the deed that he gets and he's going to put it in a safe deposit box. Let's read about it a little bit. Go to verse 14. Somebody read verse 14 and 15 from Jeremiah 32. Okay, he's going to go to a lot of trouble. What's the trouble he's going to? He, he preserves the deed, rolls the deed up, it's signed, it's legal, rolls it up, puts it in a jar and seals the jar. Now what you need to think about is that was common protocol, okay, for some document or something that I wanted to preserve. So much so that if you remember in what, 1947, 1948, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in that region of the world, still preserved after 2,000 years, okay? That, that's what was done. That was common protocol. But the other reason that he did this was because that's God's instructions. That's what God's man does, what God tells him to do. So he, he buys the property, pays cash for it, puts this in a jar. Now what? 
Here's the great promise, I believe, of the story. Look again at verse 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. What's the implication of this great promise? They're coming back. Now you got to catch this, guys. The Babylonians are outside the city. Jerusalem has not fallen yet. They haven't gone away yet. And he's already promised them they're coming back. That's, that's kind of the beauty of, of Jeremiah's prophecy here. From before it happens. It's not going to happen for, for quite a while yet. It's going to be 30-some years before they come back. Now, I, I find this intriguing to have this played out in the life of a guy like Jeremiah. In fact, he says here, God says through him, the land will be restored, people will again live in their houses, fields will be planted and harvested, vineyards will be cultivated. But there's a bit of a catch here. Somebody jump to 29.10. Where's Jeremiah going to be when all this happens? 29.10. Somebody read it? Seventy years. It's going to take a long time. Jeremiah won't be back to claim his property. He'll be gone. He'll be dead. Jeremiah doesn't have children to inherit that deed that he put in the pot. It'll probably end up back in the hands of Burford and Company, you know. (laughs) But that's not the point. The point is... We're coming back. It was May of 1999 and we would move into this building in September. It was nearly finished and you know we were up everybody that was involved in it was up here every day kind of looking things over. We're really excited about that move and still worried about how all that's going to take place over Labor Day um, in, in 99. The middle of May, my family was dealing with another big issue. Our son, my youngest, was graduating from high school. It's a big day in the family, and uh, obviously, and uh, everybody was in. Dad went, but mom couldn't to graduation, just wasn't able to. We didn't know then what we know now. Within a month, she would be gone. But in that day, she bought my son a guitar. She never heard him play it. Was that an investment in the future that she wasn't really sure whether she'd be a part of? You bet. But it was an investment in the future nonetheless. I, I find it intriguing here, and, and I want to finish this by just asking the question. What is the... Jeremiah is dealing with, are we coming back? And he's saying... Yes, we are. Things couldn't look worse. And then Jeremiah's frankly saying, oh, yes, they can get worse, and they're gonna. But you're coming back. That was the great faith question of his day. My, my issue is, or my thought is, what is your great 
faith question. What is it that you really believe needs to happen but hasn't happened yet? What is it that you fear might happen and you hope it doesn't? What's your great faith question? What is the great question in your life? I can tell you right now what it is in mine. Not gonna. What is it that, that if it was boiled down and distilled down to this is the great question of my life, this is the great issue of faith in my life, it's this, boom, right here. My closest friends know it in my life. I want to leave you with a promise that comes out of 32 that we didn't get to read. It's verse 17. I memorized this verse a long, long time ago. And I figure if they're true for Jeremiah in his day, they surely must be true in my day. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Absolutely nothing. Can, can I say to you that that is, was the answer for a, for a fairly young man at this point imprisoned by his own people, hated by his family, embarrassed by them, who his only, his only crime was, he was just doing what God told him to do. And he did it in loneliness all his life. And yet it was that man in the middle of this chapter who said, nothing is too difficult for you. Can I hang that out there for you to hang on to? On the days when you've tied the last knot in the rope of your faith? Nothing is too difficult for thee. Can you hang on to that? I can. There are times when that's all I've got to hang on to. And I bet in the bottom of that muddy cistern, Jeremiah said it again over to himself over and over and over.